we are in Revelation chapter 8. If I could, I'd like to be ambitious, and I'd like to try and get through Revelation chapter 10. I don't know that we will, but I would like to try. Um, and so uh, we're going to dive in here pretty quick. But I want to I remind us a couple things. I did lots and lots of reading this week, uh, trying to just figure out. There's so many opinions about this stuff, but a few things that are fact, that are not debatable. Uh, one, this was written to a first century church, churches, plural, local congregations. And so it has to mean something to them or it's a waste of time. Uh, it, it mattered to their faith in that moment. And we believe that it can still matter to our faith in this moment, that we can look at where they were and say, how does this relate to us? But it was not originally written to us. It was written to them. Um, most of it is metaphorical or symbolic rather than literal. We're going to see some weird and crazy things here. And some of them contradict each other. Uh, last week, we read about the sky being rolled up like a scroll and disappearing. Well, in this week, we're going to get to the sky darkening a little bit. Well, how can it darken if it's been rolled up and disappear? It's not meant to be literal. It's meant to convey a message to us. Um, and the, the big one, I think, for this week is we're trying to figure out seals and trumpets and there's bowls of wrath that are going to come later is when does this happen? Does it happen in this order? Uh, one of the things I read over and over again was the point of these chapters is not chronological, it's theological. We're trying to understand who God is, what God is doing in the world. And so we don't need to waste time trying to decipher, is this the third trumpet? Well, that, that's not helpful. Uh, what's helpful is what is this trying to communicate to us about God? Um, I feel this way about a lot of things. Sometimes we get bogged down in the details rather than in the message of it all. So we can argue about, well, I think this, this thing has happened or this one hasn't. I, we don't really know. Uh, there are some incredible images here that people have taken and they've tried to identify. Has this happened in history? Is this happening now? We're not going to know when Jesus shows up. That's what Jesus said. And so any kind of uh, us trying to decipher it and, and look to the signs is probably not healthy. My opinion is these things could happen in the past, in the current, in the future. Uh, and, and they happen around us because it's about who God is and how we're to live in response to this God. So that said, let's read some of Revelation. I'm going to read eight and uh, and then we'll go to to nine, and if we have time and people are still awake, we'll do 10. So when the lamb opened the seventh seal, you remember we have the scroll of seals that can't be opened by anyone, but one is worthy, it's the lamb. We opened six seals last time. We ended with this huge vision of people worshiping around the throne, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving belong to God forever and always. Now, after that little worship service, we have the seventh seal. Then when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar and held a gold bowl for burning incense. He was given a large amount of incense in order to offer it on behalf of the prayers of all the saints on the gold altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense offered for the prayers of the saints rose up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the incense container and filled it with fire from the altar. He threw it down to the earth 
where thunder voices lightning and there were thunder voices lightning and an earthquake then the seven angels who held the seven trumpets got ready to blow them the first trumpet blew the first angel blew his trumpet and hail and fire mixed with blood appear and it was thrown down to the earth a third of the earth was burned up a third of the trees were burned up all the green grass was burned up then the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a huge mountain burning with fire was thrown down into the sea a third of the sea became blood. A third of the creatures living in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star, burning like a torch, fell from heaven. It fell on, the thir on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The star's name was Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it became so bitter. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a, and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them became dark. The day lost a third of its light. The night lost a third of its light too. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying high overhead and it said with a loud voice, horror, horror, oh, the horror for those who live on earth because of the blasts of the remaining trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's not a very pleasant picture. It's not one of those rosy uh, passages of scripture that we read at weddings or funerals, um, but maybe we should try and work that into some of our rituals. Uh, what things stood out to you there? What, what did you notice? What questions popped in your head? I've heard references to Wormwood my whole life. I didn't realize it was a Bible thing. Yes, it's a Bible thing. That's, uh, if anybody's read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, uh, the letters are written to a demon named Wormwood. Uh, and so, from his uncle, or from Wormwood the uncle to the nephew. Wormwood's a demon in C.S. Lewis's book. The word me, it's a, it's a plant. That's a super bitter plant. And so, uh, it, some people are saying that this is, this is a, the nickname of the devil. This is the devil falling from heaven. Uh, it's a demonic thing. Some are saying it's, it's a comet that someday might hit the earth. Um, there's, there's some different things there, um, but it's not a, not a pleasant picture at all. But yes, Wormwood, it's a, it's a good name for your next cat. Anything else? Does anybody remember what the percentage of creation was affected by earlier, by the seals being being opened in previous chapters? Uh, oh. The horsemen were given some power and destruction over a certain uh, percentage. Uh, chapter six, verse eight, they were given authority, the four horsemen, death uh, and, the, and the grave coming behind them, they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. And so now in the trumpets, we have a third of the earth. Is that more or less? Anybody good at numbers? It's more. More, yes, I am not good at numbers, and, but it's true, it's more. And so most people, commentators are saying that the judgments are escalating. We start at a fourth, we move to a third, and then when we get to the bowls of wrath, which are in chapter 16, there's no percentage. It's just the whole earth. 
And so things are escalating here. Now, some scholars say that these are cyclical. They're potentially happening at, happening at the same time. Again, it's not about the um, timeline to try and figure out. It's about God is moving towards redemption of creation. And in order to get there, we need to go through some things that are not pleasant. And so we have a third of trees, a third of uh, the sea, um, lots of different things going on here. Um, one book in particular I read said these were all things that terrified the people anyway. Things like it talked about an earthquake and lightning and thunder. Um, here, if the sea turns blood, sea turning blood, darkness, anybody recognize those from anywhere else in scripture? Good. We have some Bible quizzers amongst us. Where do you get, where do you recognize those from, Kez? Uh, uh, the, the plagues and um, the Pharisee, uh, not Pharisee, uh, Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh, plagues yes. And, uh, Moses in Egypt. That's it. I knew I would find the words eventually. Absolutely. You're correct. And we're actually going to see locusts here in a minute. Uh, we're going to see some other things. So hail and darkness and um, bloody water. Um, all of that is, is the plagues of Egypt. And that's the, that, the grand story of scripture is the story of Exodus. We're moving from slavery to freedom, both slavery to Egypt and slavery to sin. Uh, and Christ is the one who sets us free and moves us out. And so that's, that's the story of scripture is an exodus from, from death and captivity to freedom and life. And so uh, he's drawing some very big spiritual illusions. I mean, these, these, were, these were big deal in the history of the Jewish people and, and the history of the Jewish faith, which we, we claim as our own faith as well, or our own, our own history as well. And so um, these, are, these are acts of God. These are not just things that happen. These, this is God moving and working in the world in an attempt to get people's attention. We're going to read uh, in chapter 9 here uh, that, that God's intention here is to get their attention. The same with the plagues with Pharaoh. God wanted to get the attention of the, the Egyptians so that they would pay attention and let the people go. And their own stubborn rebellion caused them to eventually, the plagues progressed and got worse. The firstborn would die, and then the whole army drowns in a sea. Um, so our stubborn rebellion sometimes makes things worse. Anybody agree with that? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So uh, the goal is repentance. Uh, God is not um, trying to punish at this point. He's trying to get people's attention. If you notice, this, all these things are happening to the world around humanity rather than to humanity itself. And so we're, God's trying to apparently get, get the attention of the people. Or as some, some um, scholars say, God is allowing humanity to reap the consequences of all their sin and destructive behavior that God's not causing this God stepped back and allowed, Hey, you know what? You want to try and go your way, go your way. Um, and so the temptation for the people at the time, the first century Christians was to ally with Rome, to give allegiance to Rome, to participate in, in Roman pagan rituals, to worship Roman gods, to forget their first love. And they would have done that in the name of economic stability and comfort and luxury and security and, and all the same things that we want for our lives. Um, and here, all those things are put under. 
So if the sea turns to blood, you're not going to have much uh, fishing agriculture life. If if the trees and plants are, are burning up, you're not going to have any agriculture. You're not going to have crop uh, to sell. The ships are destroyed. A lot of people say the fact that the ships are destroyed is speaking to the way that the, the Roman Empire was a, was a seafaring empire. There were merchants. And, and so if your ships are gone, you're not going to make money. And so all the things that tempt you with the, the way the world tempts you are actually going to fall apart. And so there's no real security there. There's no security apart from God and God alone. The other thing is to contrast uh, what happened in Revelation 7 and what's happening in 8. In Revelation 7, it says the people of God who are worshiping, uh, they won't be scorched by the sun anymore. And here, the people are being burned by fire from heaven. And there, they are led to springs of water. And here, the water is turned bitter and poisoned them. Uh, there's this great reversal going on. There's the way of Jesus, which will lead to life and flourishing and, and uh, peace. And there's the way of empire or the dragon, which will lead to destruction and bitterness and death. And so sometimes in the moment, we want to take shortcuts. We want to say, oh, this looks easier. This looks more peaceful. This looks more fulfilling. But the message of Revelation is no shortcuts. Hang on to Jesus at all costs. It's not going to be pretty, but it's going to be worse for those who abandon the way of Jesus. Horror, horror, horror. Whoa, whoa, whoa to those who live on earth uh, because the remaining trumpets and the three angels are about to blow. Anything else in chapter eight that sticks out to anybody? You specifically said don't pay attention to chronological. Um, yeah, that. Chronological. Thank you. Um, but then it did specifically say one and then two and then three and then four. Yes. Like it, it definitely laid it out. It definitely does lay it out there. And, and so, yes, absolutely. I think most people are saying, don't look for it to where you roll out a chart and you try and say, well, the first trumpet was when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And the second trumpet was like, People have tried to pinpoint things along the way to say, oh, this is in order to predict the future. We believe Christ is coming again. Let's figure that out. That's not the point of Revelation is not to figure out when Christ is going to come again. And the point is that God is going to bring judgment. There is going to be a, a renewal, but we're in times of tribulation all the time. They were in tribulation in the first century. We're going through a time of tribulation right here in our coronavirus, uh, racial tension, partisanship nonsense that we live in. There's tribulation in churches in Saudi Arabia where they can't meet publicly. And so if we are looking for, does this fit the puzzle rather than what does this say to us in the midst of? So does that make sense? Like, I do think that God's judgment starts smaller and grows because God is patient and gives us room to grow. And then eventually you've had enough. So I think that there is a process, but I just don't think it's a, we're trying to, to fill it in on a timeline kind of a thing. That makes a lot more sense. Okay. Good question. And I reserved the right to, the right to be wrong um, because we will find competing opinions about this stuff. I mean, there, there are lots. I mean, there's a lot. I've tried to read a variety of books trying to get a well-rounded perspective and which one seems to, to fit with, you know. So here, here's one issue. We've not gotten anywhere. We've not 
read anything about, heard anything about, or been able to draw any conclusions about something called the rapture. Um, that's a huge part of our understanding of the end of times, but that's not in here. Um, and so some people read it in in certain places to try and make sense of things or try to understand will it happen before uh, there's all this hardship or after there's all this hardship or in chapter seven, there's all these people around the throne. So that must have been after some kind of rapture. Well, that, that's just not that this is not something that's in here that, that we've even come across yet. And so uh, I think we waste a lot of time with predictions and trying to understand some things that aren't even necessarily in the book. We're going to start meeting some crazy characters here in the next few chapters. Um, and those have been labeled as everybody from Barney the dinosaur to the Pope, Obama, Billy Graham. And, and it's just, that's not the point of Revelation. The point is be faithful, don't give in, even when times are hard, which I think is a message that we need for ourselves. We can do it on a global scale. We can do it as individuals. And so, and the message here is that evil will be, will be, will be put down, that God will ultimately be victorious. And so the things that are causing our suffering and hardship and then the brokenness of our world will end up defeated, which is good news because we need some, some justice in our, in our lives and in our world. So let's go to chapter nine, unless someone stops me. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. He opened the shaft of the abyss, and smoke rose up from the shaft like smoke from a huge furnace. The sun and air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came forth from the smoke and onto the earth. They were given power like the power that scorpions have on earth. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree. They could only hurt the people who didn't have the seal of God on their foreheads. The locusts weren't allowed to kill them, but only to make them suffer for five months. And the suffering they inflict is like that of a scorpion when it strikes a person. In those days, people will seek death, but they won't find it. They will want to die, but death will run away from them. The locusts looked like horses ready for battle. On their heads were what seemed to be gold crowns. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like a woman's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. In front they had what seemed to be an iron armor upon their chests, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots and horses racing into battle. They also have tails with stingers, just like scorpions, and in their tails is the, their power to hurt people for five months. Their king is an angel from the abyss, whose Hebrew name is Abaddon, and whose Greek name is Apollyon. The first horror has passed. Look, two horrors are still coming after this. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the gold altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been made ready for that hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of humankind. The number of cavalry troops was 200 million. I heard their number. And this is the way I saw the horses and their riders in their vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The horses' heads were like lion's heads, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. By these three plagues, uh, uh, by these three plagues, a third of humankind was killed by fire, smoke, sulfur coming out of their mouths. The horses' power is in their mouths and their tails 
for their tails are like snakes with heads that inflict injuries. The rest of humankind who weren't killed by these plagues didn't change their hearts and lives or turn from their handiwork. They didn't stop worshiping demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can't see or hear or walk. They didn't turn away from their murders, their spells and drugs, their sexual immorality, or their stealing. So there's some vivid imagery right there. Someone should draw us a picture of these creatures. Um, mm. They're ugly and hideous, and that's the point. They're supposed to be ugly and hideous. These are bad things. Um, that's where some of the people I've been reading, they're talking about that these trumpets and plagues and seals, God's allowing, but that it's turning over the world to the ways of the world. Um, these things are not, these are not godly <laughs> creatures. These are demonic creatures. And they probably represent um, some of the things that scared the people at the time. So for instance, they, the talk of the Euphrates River and the hair like women and horses that had snakes for tails. Um, the, the Euphrates River was the edge of the Roman Empire at the time and the Parthian Empire was on the other side and their, their warriors had long hair and they tied their horses tails to look like snakes. And so it was their enemy. So in our context, it'd be the Canadians. They're going to come with maple syrup dripping out of their eyes. Or, you know, so he's using very apocalyptic, big, scary language to explain something that they were already afraid of. And so we would use terrorism or we'd use pandemics if this was being written to us now. That they were already afraid of earthquakes and the sea and the Parthians coming and locusts because all of their freedom and security and livelihood was dependent on those things and they had no control over them. And so the message seems to be it's not going to go well. There are going to be things, all the things that you're putting your trust in could go away. If your trust is in the Roman Empire, just across the Euphrates River, there's an army of lion-headed horses and snake-tailed horses who are going to come and overthrow you. And so why would you put your trust in Rome? Why would you put your trust in uh, iron and bronze, gold, silver, stone, idols that can't see, hear, or walk? Like God is calling out the things that these people have given their heart and devotion and allegiance to. Um, the, the verse 11 there, the king is an angel from the abyss whose Hebrew name is Abaddon, whose Greek name is Apollyon. Apollos was a, was a Roman god. And so some are saying there's kind of a play on words there where he's kind of poking fun at the, at the Romans. But the, the word means destruction or the destructor. And so here we have the destructor who is undoing the creator's good creation. And so there is some kind of battle going on between our God, who is a creative God, and the leader of these locusts, the king from the abyss, who is the destructive king. And so it's good versus evil. There's a spiritual battle going to take place. I don't know. So I've had that. Anybody have read or heard this explained as helicopters, military helicopters in their understanding of Revelation? I remember distinctly where I was sitting. I was in junior high and I was listening to a pastor preach Revelation and he said, these are helicopters and there's going to be a military battle between the United States and China and, and they're the power of these locusts that they, 
they have armor on their tails sting like scorpions because they fire missiles and he's like this is john seeing what's going to happen in the year 2000 when y2k falls apart and and we go to war and i was just like whoa this is and then y2k happened and we're still here it's probably not helicopters it's probably meant to be locusts because locusts were destructive and they were used as plagues and it would have ravaged the empire. And so God is saying, if you give yourself to these things, it's going to end up in destruction. It's, this is what happened when Jonah went to Nineveh. When Jonah went to Nineveh, he was supposed to preach judgment and say, if you don't turn from these ways, God's going to destroy you. And so he goes and he preaches the shortest sermon ever, one sentence. God's going to kill you in 40 days if you don't knock it off. And the people were convinced. They're like, okay. And they gave their life to God and they turned from, they went in mourning and they, they fasted and God spared the city. That's what's supposed to be happening here. If you don't, all these things will happen. And then we get down to verse 20, the rest of humankind that wasn't killed by the plagues didn't change their hearts or lives or turn from their handiwork. They didn't stop worshiping these false gods. So the idea was to bring about repentance, to bring about, uh, change of heart and direction to show them who's really in charge, but they're just not getting it. Does that make sense? A little bit conf confusing questions, comments? Verse four talks about um, having the seal of God on their foreheads and yes. basically it sounds like that exempts these people are Christian, I guess, assuming that's Christians, mm -hmm. from this suffering. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the, the idea was that, yeah, if, if you're sealed, you are, you are secure from this suffering, except not all of it. So in verse four, it, they, uh, where are we at? not to hurt the grass. They could, oh, they could only hurt the people with the seal for a little bit of time. They couldn't kill them. And so the idea is probably that it's still going to be not fun, but you won't be destroyed fully, which I mean, I guess between the two. Um, but there was the sealing took place in chapter seven. Um, don't, don't damage the earth, sea, and trees until you put a seal on the foreheads of those who serve God. And that was 144,000 from every tribe of, of Israel. And then that turns into a great crowd that no one could number, this massive group before the throne. And so, yes, the Christians, those who are faithful to God, have been spared ultimate destruction, ultimate uh, chaos because they belong to the lamb. So if you belong to the dragon, you're going to pay the way of the dragon and it's not going to be fun. If you belong to the lamb, it still might not be great, but you're going to be spared. Do you think that is um, on earth or is it talking about, I mean, obviously we'll go to heaven and be ultimately spared there. Right. So is the protection actually on earth while we're living here or is that a future thing i would love to hear from somebody else now um i'm gonna go with yes um it's protection in in an eternal way 
but I also think that there are some protection that we experience now. So today somebody came to pick something up from a yard sale we had yesterday and we made a joke about coronavirus, stay away. And he was like, oh, I don't have coronavirus, I have Jesus. That's not the kind of seal we're talking about. You can get coronavirus and still have Jesus. You can be a part of earthquakes and famine and destruction because we live in a fallen world. The world is broken by sin and we're a part of that. And so I like we we read earlier about about the martyrs who were under the altar, people who had suffered fully and it had cost them their very lives. But I think that they had they had a different kind of experience in that because they were followers of the lamb. And so even if this costs us our life, we are sealed and we are protected for the eternal. And so that protects us in the now on earth, regardless of what we're going through. I can have peace that passes understanding. I can be faithful in the midst of this. I can endure till the end. I can, I can deal with suffering now because I know that in the end, that'll be better than this suffering here. So I don't know if I answered or if I skirted your question. Um, I don't see it as a, we're going to be fine because, because we have Jesus. I think that's a prosperity ish gospel that doesn't show show up anywhere in the new Testament. But I do think that it gives us a tool and a weapon when we're battling things that are, when we're going through tribulations to, to give us some courage and, and foundation in the midst of that. Does that sounds good? I mean, that makes I think that's how they would have read it back in the first century. We're struggling. Do I, do I participate in these guilds? Do I worship Caesar in physical form without doing it in my heart? Can I, can I offer incense to Nero? Can I, and still follow Jesus? They're, they're wrestling with some serious hard tribulation. I mean, they're going through some serious stuff. And I, I think what they're hearing here is it's temporary. It's five months. That's the life cycle of a locust. So you got five months. Now, that five months might be long, but in the course of eternity, it's it's short. And so I think sometimes our perspective needs to be what we're going through is is temporary, no matter how bad it is. And and we have we have the promise of an eternal life where God has redeemed and restored all things. Another uh, comparison to uh, Pharaoh is there in verse 20 where they don't turn their hearts and lives. They don't repent. That's just the same as Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart, wasn't having it, and so ends up uh, suffering more and more consequences. And then they name some very specific sins, idol worship, things made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, and then murder spells and drugs, sexual immorality and stealing. And so the issue is not necessarily you believe the wrong things. The issue is you're doing the wrong things. You, you can believe or you claim that you believe in Jesus. This is a letter to churches uh, and, and still have given yourselves to the ways of the world and the things of the world. And I think that's, that's the, that's the poignancy for us. We have a lot of people in our country who say the right things. They can pray the right things. They've prayed the right prayers. 
but their fruit of the spirit doesn't show up in their lives. They're not being discipled by Jesus. They're not growing in grace or faith. And we look more like the world than we do like Jesus. And I feel like I'm beating that drum to death as we go through that. But I just feel like that's, that's the main point. Uh, how do we stay faithful to the way of Jesus in the midst of a world that, that it, it's so backwards and caught up the way that uh, we spend our time and the way, like I just little things. Sometimes I'm wondering like, man, is this really what God wants for the church? Uh, and I'm not sure it's, it, it's really what God wants. I think sometimes we assume it is. And so we, sh- we need to do the hard work of making sure that we don't lose our connection to the spirit of God that we let the spirit of God dwell within us and shape us and mold us and form us and convict us um, that we're constantly learning that we're constantly asking the spirit to speak through scripture, through fellow Christians who can teach us and shape us and mold us. What, what things, what idols in my life might I be giving myself over to uh, what, what sins it's probably not murder. I don't know. Kez might be a little murderous. I'm not quite sure. She's from Oklahoma. Um, and it's hopefully not drugs or spells, but there, there is apathy and there is hatred of neighbor and there is greed and lust. And these things, they work their way into our lives and it's easy for us to justify and say, they're just a small part, but we need to be diligent and work against these things because these things lead to this kind of destruction. They belong to the abyss and to the locusts and to the king whose name is destruction rather than the God who is creator and good and just. And I think that's where our understanding of sin needs some work is that it's not that God is just opposed to those things and grossed out by them the way that I'm grossed out by peas or cats. It's that these things are destructive and they are not good for us or for the world around us. They're not good for our neighbors. They do not lead to flourishing. They do not lead to the world that God intends. And so we are to give ourselves to those kinds of things. When we started in in chapter eight, there was that silence in heaven. And a lot of people describe that as that's the time when the church is praying. That's when we're supposed to, we're, we're, we're praying both in actual prayers and praying with our feet, working for the kingdom to come. And then those prayers are thrown down on earth as a part of the judgment against all that is evil and destructive, that we are a part of the redemption that we're a part of pointing out what is broken and, and destructive and harmful. And uh, it's not always easy to do that. Sometimes it's, it's a challenge. It's difficult. Um, but the smoke of the incense rising to heaven, that's one of the reasons a lot of churches light candles. You, you watch that smoke rise, that the imagery comes from the temple, um, from the tabernacle, from the temple. And even in revelation as our, our prayers matter in heaven. And they matter in the bringing about of God's kingdom and our actions matter. And so to quote John Lewis, who passed away yesterday, he said, we pray with our feet. Uh, we get up and we go, we're the kingdom of God. We're the ones who are, who are meant to bring about good news and, and to preach repentance and to show a better way. And so, so that people can be spared from destruction, because we do believe that in the end, there is this, there's destruction for those who choose evil and those who who rejected Jesus. And so we want to give people opportunities to follow and know and be known by God. And so one of the ways we do that is by worshiping and learning and growing and being uh, surrendered to the spirit of God. And so tonight I want to pause for a moment before we receive communion. We're not going to do chapter 10 because it's already past six and 
my children might burn the house down. Um, but I want us to take a few moments of, of reflection. Uh, are there things in my life that I put my security in? Um, as Kristen and I were, were wrestling with job choices this week and what that means and how we're going to take care of our kids, those are very practical questions. And I, and I think that they're necessary because we don't want to go through life unwise. But it's also really easy to think that it's all dependent on us and we're the ones who have to figure it out and it's up to us and, and what's best for us. Um, and Kristen goes to a spiritual director and she called her and, and was telling her, you know, we're trying to, and, and her director said, um, if you feel like it's what God wants for you, everything else is just logistics. And that was just like a word that she needed and that I needed. It, it'll work out and I don't need to make schedule a God that takes away my joy or that worries me or that makes me gray faster. Um, I don't need to make my bank account the thing that drives me. I don't need to make what people are thinking uh, about me. I, that's not where I find my success. That's not where I find. And so for the, the this church here, it was economy and, and security and, and privilege. And I feel like we are tempted by those same things. And as we're wrestling with what kind of people do we vote for? Do we vote at all? Is the system so broken that we should just burn it all down? Uh, how do we approach our neighbors who, who vote differently than us or look differently than us or worship differently than us? It's easy for all this stuff to get in the way of who Jesus is and, and what Jesus means to us and to the world. And so let's pause. Let's reflect. Let's ask. I'm going to ask a couple questions um, and just make sure that there's no other things whether it be the Roman Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the North American Empire, the account at First National Bank of Hutchinson with my name on it, because we still have not moved our bank account and we've lived in two different states since then. Um, is it, is it what, what things might get in the way? So if you would, let me pray and then give you some questions. God, I ask that in these moments you'd speak to us, that you'd reveal our hearts, that you would reveal our worries, that you would reveal maybe some idols or some things that we have given ourselves to, that maybe there are fears or insecurities or expectations, cultures, uh, understandings that have gotten in the way of you and the life that you want for us and then uh, the way of our ministry to the world. So in these moments, God, would you speak to our hearts and reveal yourself to us? God, would you right now show us some areas where fear has kept us from being faithful to you? God, would you show us somewhere where our behavior has not been Christ-like, where we've acted more like the dragon than we have like the lamb? God, would you bring to mind persons or situations that need us to demonstrate your goodness and love to the world for their own sake? Wow. 
And then God, we believe our prayers matter and that you listen and that you hear what we're saying and that we don't always understand why and where you answer or how you answer, but we offer these situations that are on our heart to you right now. God, we pray that you would bring justice to earth, that you would right all that is wrong, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. God, give us the courage to be a part of it. Give us the courage to repent of what needs repenting of, to turn around and walk away from behavior that is destructive or unchristlike. God, when we act more like the dragon and the, and the locusts and that which is evil, would you help us to turn around and, and walk towards the lamb? Would we be participants in water that brings life rather than water that brings bitterness? God, would we bring, bring light where we go rather than darkness? Would we bring peace rather than war? God, we want to be a part of your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and we need you to change us and shape us and push us and mold us and show us the way forward. And so as we head out into our week, we ask that you would do that. God, as we participate in this communion supper, we ask that your grace would fill us and shape us and mold us, that this very tangible meal would be the very thing we need, and that here we would find the forgiveness and the assurance of forgiveness that all the idols and destructive behaviors and things we've walked away from have no bearing on us any longer, and that this would fortify us and give us the strength to resist when the economy says one thing, when our politics says another thing, when what we believe about you is challenged by what we see in the world around us, when we're suffering and hurting and wondering how long, oh Lord, may your grace sustain us. God, I pray that this meal that you shared with your disciples would be good news in our mouths and in our guts, and that it would send us out as good news into the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.